Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Capital Games podcast. Uh, you have your co-host here, Sam Johnson, and my other co-host, Tyler Sells. Hey, Sam. Happy to be here. Looking forward to jumping into this. Yeah, I think it's going to be a good time. Hope you guys enjoy it. Tyler, do you want to um, just kind of give everybody a little bit of an intro into what the Capital Games podcast is? Yeah, totally. And um, I think we're both pretty stoked uh, to be working on this together and excited to get this first episode out here. Um, For those of you who may remember, we recorded a podcast back in the summer of 2020, right after COVID happened, and we lost Mm -hmm. our internships uh, called the Life on Leverage podcast. And we interviewed different people in kind of the finance world that we knew. Um, And really, the purpose of that was just to kind of, one, give ourselves a summer project, and two, uh, kind of help other students learn about the world of finance. Um, Sam and I have, of course, we've since graduated college for, since then, uh, and we've started careers. And then thinking back about what we really enjoyed, we enjoyed doing the podcast. And we wanted to switch up the format a little bit, but um, kind of get back to it. And we think there's kind of a market out there for, uh, you know, what we're going to call, you know, young 20s uh, professionals. Uh, that are kind of going through an unparalleled moment right now in history with uh, just what's Mm -hmm. going on in the greater world, something that we haven't seen because we don't really remember 2008. Um, So that's kind of the purpose of it at a very high level, Uh, but we'll get more into that. But why don't, before we do so, Sam, why don't you give yourself a little bit of an intro? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, So obviously me and Tyler went to uh, the King's College. That's kind of where we became friends. Um, I was really interested in working in finance for the first couple of years at school. Uh, then had kind of a change of heart and wanted to pursue um, something more in tech. And so currently I serve as the chief of staff at a crypto tech startup called Token Tax. Um, so My day-to-day is super varied um, and kind of covers the gambit of things on the BizOps side of of, uh, running a startup. So, you know, it can be anything from ordering snacks for the office to, you know, back of house strategic finance planning and whatnot. So uh, it covers the gambit, gives me a lot of exposure to a bunch of different areas of the tech startup, which is really great. Um, And I've had a lot of fun learning about crypto. So that's kind of a, a quick, short little elevator pitch of what I'm doing at the moment. Um, but Tyler, why don't you tell everybody what you're doing? It's quite interesting. Yeah. And uh, just really quickly, Sam, what, uh, I don't even know if we've talked about this recently. What's now the headcount um, over there with you guys? What are you guys kind of sitting around? We're like close to 50, I think. Nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. Probably close to 50, somewhere around there. Solid. And it's based, you're based in, is everyone kind of like out of New York or is it kind of varied? Uh, we have about, I would say a third to half of the team in New York city. And then cool. the rest are kind of spread out across the U S solid. Great. Yeah. Well, um, you know, obviously Sam and I both graduated together from Kings, um, towards that last year I was there, I was working on a, uh, a startup called Rolla, uh, to build a kind of community engagement mobile application, uh, for communities and organizations. I still operate that. Um, still run that today, but I also um, have started my career uh, in finance. I'm working at a buy-side advisory uh, for private equity clients. We work uh, with different private equity firms and um, their portfolio companies on their M&A strategy. 
uh, and in particular to go and do kind of early level research, due diligence, outreach, and conversations with um, potential targets. So we help them source and uh, close deals um, in and around their portfolio clients. And we also do some platform deals for private equity clients as well. Uh, but really the bread and butter of the business has been add-on acquisitions. So started there in June. Um, it's been going well so far, based out here in Newport Beach, California. Um, so left the big California, city. California, baby. Left the big city for another kind of um, another kind of hell, if you know, if you know anything about New York City <laughs> and, and LA. Neither neither are the best places to live sometimes. So I'm enjoying it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um well, Tyler, do you want to talk a little bit about the, um, the overall structure of the pod and kind of what we're going to try to accomplish? Totally. Um, you know, with Life on Leverage, our goal was just to educate people about, um, you know, individual stories, um, stories that we found to be inspiring. Um, I think as Sam and I looked at what we were passionate now, that's still a part of our lives. But um, we also are just seeing so much unprecedented um, things happening that we thought, hey, it'd be fun to, you know, we're reading this all day, every day. Um, and we're kind of having conversations with other young uh, men and women kind of starting their careers where this is also really new. Um, maybe there's a place for us to just hop on a podcast once a week um, and kind of just talk through what we're seeing, educate on maybe some more niche sections of the market or things that happened in the week. Um, as a kind of an educational resource, but then also just as like, hey, how do we think and work through some of these things? Um, and it's almost kind of like a, a, a living journal, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. for whatever the next year and a half has in store for us. So our objective is each podcast to get on, hit on a few, um, hit on a few key subjects that happened in the market that week, um, some overall macro trends along with some individual stories. Um, so that's a little bit of the goal. Uh, I'll hand it off to you, Sam. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that or if there's anything you want to talk about for today. Yeah, no, I, I think your point about it, uh, it's a living journal. This is as much for us as it is for you guys. So I think, I hope that'll like show in the quality of the pod because um, I think we'll re- me and Tyler will really enjoy doing it. And I think that'll kind of, you know, we'll put our best foot forward and, and provide quality content. Um, so I think before we start, uh, got to give a little disclosure to cover our, um, our backs legally. This is obviously not financial advice. Um, this is not, uh, what we're saying is not reflective. Our opinion is not reflective of the companies that me and Tyler work for. And, uh, the information that we are talking about is completely, um, completely public. It's not confidential. Um, so this is, you're, you can find this up on the Wall Street Journal or TechCrunch or Bloomberg. So um, just a quick uh, little disclosure. Um, and then I think we are ready to jump right into it. Uh, Let's do it. Tyler, it's been, it's been a, a crazy few months um, in the markets and in the world. Uh, what is your kind of, if you're looking at things on a macro level, where do you see the biggest risks at at the moment, and um, why do you think those are risks? Yeah, so I actually right before we jump into it, one of the things I was actually just thinking about as we started to record this was when did when did this 
when did this change in how you and I started looking at the market happen? And what I mean by that is like, when did, when was all of a sudden this abnormal? And thinking back to it, I remembered I was driving back from a meeting in New York City um, back in March of 2020. Uh, and I remember calling you and being like, the world's going to end. Do you remember that phone remember, call, Sam? Oh, I, I totally remember. I know exactly where I was when you called me that. Yeah, that was, yeah, I totally remember where that was. And then ensued was like, and like we continued, like we would literally call like every week and be like, did you see this? Or did you say, we just hit this record. We just hit this record. And like, I think I've gotten so bored of every day reading the news and seeing another record being broken, whether that was a good record or a bad record over the past two years, two and a half years. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, the biggest risks here, going back to your initial question is like, first of all, this is really unprecedented. Um, you know, like there is, we have, we had theories of how to engage in 2020. Uh, and obviously there were good decisions, bad decisions, some of the lockdown policies, um, what kind of happened, you know, like, you know, we're not facing really, um, a demand side recession. We're facing a supply side recession where, um, you know, we got really, really backed up and behind and then now we're over. I mean, like there's just so much craziness that's going on. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think I think that is that's one aspect of this, that it's like this is unprecedented. And now we're on the other end where it's like, hey, we are intentionally going to raise interest rates um, by serious jumps, biggest. And like sometimes I might imagine we'll hit the biggest in history um, or something close to it. And because we're fa facing inflation, that really hasn't been seen in 40 years. Um, and the global, the global economy is much different. I mean, if you go back 40 years, China's economy hardly existed on a global scale. So many emerging markets didn't exist on a global scale. Um, we're an interconnected world and we're facing new challenges. And I think that the risk is, hey, this is unprecedented. Um, and there's going to be some companies that don't make it through. Yeah, I, I mean, this is 100%. Um, thing, like, this is not a time that we've... We haven't seen anything like this since the 1970s. Um, and even that, you know, it's it's similar in some cases, but there's aspects of the market, like on a macro environment, on a macro scale that are similar to the 1970s, but there's also pockets of the market that are similar to other economic slowdowns or recessions. Um, yeah. And just for some perspective, uh, Paul Volk Volcker, who was, for those of you that don't know, he was the Fed chair um, in the 1970s that was kind of responsible for uh, breaking the back of inflation um, and getting the economy kind of stabilized. Um, he raised the interest rate to 20%. The federal, the, the Fed fund rate, he raised to 20%. And we are currently sitting at like, like it's what like two to something right now yeah um so you know i don't think we're gonna have to get to 20 percent, but like you know the, yeah <laughs> you yeah, and i will like be buying homes for quite a while if that's the case yeah yeah so this this is definitely uh you know it's not it's not a great time just because we've been kind of hopped up on um large amounts of of stimulus for the last whatever two years like money printing for the last eight to ten years and like quantitative easing and all of this stuff like there's we're
we're kind of like coming off of a high uh, economically for the last, you know, decade plus. And, you know, as an addict, uh, you know, it's going to be challenging to kind of quit cold turkey and come back to reality. Do you um, do you remember? And I believe it was our uh, college macroeconomics class with um, Dr. Jared Pinson, um, and he talked about modern monetary theory and how it basically mm-hmm. was just kind of made up. <laughs> yes. Do you remember? Do you yeah. remember that? And we just talked about. And I I, I remember that day being like, he's like, yeah, now we just believe that we can print, and um, you know, it, from it's what they want us to teach is modern monetary theory. And I remember him saying, like, I think this is going to bite us in the butt. Um, and I think we're getting there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that like more fiscally conservative professors across America have been saying that for a very long time. And I think everyone kind of just thought like, yeah, like you're a boomer. You (laughs) don't understand like the new way that we do things now. And then now it's like, oh, okay, actually you can't just print trillions of dollars and expect nothing bad to happen. Right. Um, Right. So, I mean, the, 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 I just looked up the Fed funds rate is between one and a half percent and 1.75%. So, yep. and I think like, right now the market's lot. expecting a 75 basis point or 0.75% increase that could potentially get up to one. I don't know if it's like, I don't know how certain people are on that, but I definitely think it's, 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 it could easily get up to one because I think we just printed this month. Um, we actually overshot inflation expectations. I think. Um, it was 9.1%. Yeah. And I think wasn't the market trying to, I think the market was wanting to peg it in at like eight points. I want 8.7. 8.6. 8.6. Yeah. So, you know, I think that is, um, you know, I think that that gives them enough reason to possibly go all the way up to a full, a full point of increase. Yeah. Okay. So we've, we've talked a bit about inflation um, and the market a little bit. What is another uh What's another risk I you think about when you're looking at the macro environment? Um, uh, you know, over the next call it two years or so, what's another area that you think is kind of a risk? Well, I think it's hard. You know, our objective on this show is not really to talk too much about politics, um, mostly politics and how it relates to the market. Um, but I think it is. Um, I, I think we would be foolish not to touch on. Uh, the current political environment, especially um, what's going on at an international level. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think the very clear thing that comes to mind is, hey, it's been um, a few months now and this Russia, Ukraine and greater um, kind of world conflict that's brewing is still going on. You know, we're not having the tech companies change their logos anymore, um, (laughs) but, but we just gave them $40 billion dollars. Um, and they're asking yeah. for more. I saw that um, uh, President Zelensky's wife, uh, Mrs. the First Lady Zelensky, uh, was at the was in D.C. Um, oh wow! Past, it was in the past week and was in D.C. Met with um, our First Lady as well, and just kind of like is in D.C. to kind of lobby for support. Um, so I don't think that this is something that's ending. And I think it's, there's obviously a lot of from energy all the way down to like, Hey, we've got a partnership 
uh, you know, this has kind of strengthened the, you know, kind of European uh, U.S. relationships. But at the same time, I could also see some challenges being brewed from just international relations, Russia's deepening relationship with China, who they weren't really too close of friends with before, um, Russia's deepening relationship with India, uh, and mm-hmm. India kind of being in some ways the next China in terms of what we saw from the 90s till now in terms of GDP growth um, and ec- like kind of greater economic growth um, and that relationship deepening with China, with Russia. So I just think there's some global trends that are going on that make me feel uneasy. And I don't think I felt that way. You know, obviously there was 9-11 and war in Afghanistan, Iraq, um, but that to me did not seem when I was younger quite the same as this kind of global crisis. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that I, you know, you talking made me think about. I think firstly, yeah, the, the war on terror obviously had other implications, but there wasn't, there, there just wasn't like the massive geopolitical consequences that come along with superpowers kind of duking it out. Um, and then I think the other thing that you touched on just briefly uh, from a market standpoint that, that concerns me uh is is energy the energy shortage that we're kind of going to be coming up on um so for those of you that don't know uh russia is a massive provider of oil and natural gas to europe um and uh there's been some debate of whether like it's basically being used as like another form of warfare along with this war that they're waging in ukraine um so we Europe was extremely reliant on Russia for oil and natural gas um, until you know this war broke out, and I think you know as Americans we look at that and say like how does that affect us? Like we don't necessarily import that much oil from Russia, um, you know like wh- who why why do we care? Well, it raises the cost of oil worldwide um, when Russia decides to say like screw Europe, we're turning off the spigot. That'll raise the cost of of um, of doing business for every con- or every company in the world because like it, it, there's so many second and third layer implications when it comes to energy prices that we don't even think about. Like I, I was just talking yeah. to um, an uh, an American. Uh, he worked at Jefferies uh, as an oil and gas banker. Um, and uh, he, he was explaining to me, like, literally everything that you buy, oil is touched in some way. Um, and so you, if that's like an input cost in like your refrigerator, because the truck had to deliver the refrigerator to your house, but then also the truck had to deliver all the parts to the yeah. manufacturing plant, like you just go down the line and just becomes a disaster very quickly. And so that that adds to the inflation story of like you know oil prices rising obviously it hurts at the pump when you go to fill up your car but everything is going to cost more because yeah. of that yeah so i think that's like one of the most interesting dynamics that plays into uh the overall market at the moment when it comes to like a geopolitical risk totally Well, and Sam, I think it's not only is it fascinating to see kind of where where we're at um, with an energy shortage, but I also think it's important, like the question that I've heard from people um, our age uh, is like, okay, why, why is this a challenge? Like, okay, we don't have enough oil, let's make more oil, right? Um, and I really think that there's a few things that have gone on. And I listened to, there's a Bloomberg um, 
Uh, it's called Odd Lots. It's a podcast where they go really in depth on a subject with a subject matter expert. Um, and there's a private equity um, guy who I think he was a managing director um, in the podcast. It's a couple of weeks old. If you go to Bloomberg Odd Lots, you can listen to it. And he talked about why can't we just turn oil spigots back on? And what he said was that, like, listen, a few things happened over the course of the past few years. Like the first being um, the sentiment around oil has gotten very negative very quickly. Um, we want to move to renewable energies. It's not this hot future. Um, and so that means investors aren't putting money into it. Um, and so that means that the current investors, what they want is they want to start generating returns. They want share buybacks. They want dividends. Um, and so there's a greater push to CEOs of oil companies say, hey, pull back the reins on growth. Let's focus on a bottom line. Let's focus on share buybacks. Um, what oil companies did is they started rather than like, let's say, a, a, let's say something in their entire supply chain broke down. Um, whether it was a refinery or even like the parts to a truck, rather than saying, okay, let's go buy, let's put new capital expenditures into this. They were taking parts of older vehicles of older factory parts and basically like cannibalizing that equipment to use on the equipment that they were using uh, from plants or various things that they had shut down. And so what that means is now as we're saying, hey guys, let's ramp it up. Like we got to fix this. They literally don't have the parts mm -hmm. to do it, right. to put things back online. And there's such a global supply chain challenge that that exasperates even, even more. And it's also in general, this is not like, hey, go build a website and you're done in a week. This is a, this is a process that can take a very long time to, to increase our production. Um, and I think that what I've seen and what I have a very strong opinion on now that I didn't before this is I think that like energy, um, and kind of like being able to be our own energy supplier and ideally an exporter of energy. I think it's a, mm -hmm. I think it's a bipartisan issue and I think it's actually a national security issue. Um, and I think that's something that I probably wouldn't have had an opinion on three years ago. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with all that you've just said. I think that the, like, you know, at the end of the day, everybody wants, I think if you ask anybody, it's like, do we want to destroy the planet? No, I think everyone can agree that that's like a bad, it's just like, it's just a bad thing to do. Um, but, you, you know, that's like kind of where the agreement stops. I think if you look at it from like a strategy point of view, um, the renewables thing like that, I, I think long-term is going to be the, it, it's going to be where things are headed. And I think that's going to be kind of the right decision to make. Um, but it's going to take a long time to get there. And so for the moment, like we have kind of these issues with Russia and our national security and all that. And so we need to kind of shore things up in the next, like for the, for the next five years, 10 years down the line, like when we can make the commitment to be like, yeah, hopefully, you know, we can have uh, renewables in this country at a place where it can provide a, a large portion of our energy. Like I'm all for that. But in the short term, it's like, okay, we do have some issues that we need to solve rather quickly. Um, and so I, I agree with you on that. And I do agree that it is a national security concern because, you know, when you're relying on countries that are to not align with like your uh, belief systems on a fundamental level, 
Um, well, now I think then, it was. I don't know if this. I don't know if this trip happened, but be, just because I know uh, President Biden uh, got COVID, but like, um, you know, we've been kind of having to go back to the Middle East and you know, kind of like, kind of you know, scrap for some to the, for them to increase their oil oil production, right? And I mean, like, um, yeah. fundamentally, we're just not aligned on a lot of the way we see the world, um, and I think that is not that's not a good position. You're totally right. Yeah, exactly. Like we don't want to be relying on countries that like don't believe in freedom of speech and like, you know, just very fundamental constitutionally protected things in America. And it's like, oh, hey, like we'll kind of turn a blind eye to all of that because we need your oil. Um, and it's it goes the same thing for for semiconductors and chips as well. Totally, with, totally. Like with with China, like we, we kind of just have to deal with that because yeah, well, I, Taiwan produces like a huge percentage of the world's chips. And so it's just like, you know, the, the faster that we can bring uh, stuff back to the United States um, w- with particularly chips and oil, I think, you know, we, we're self-reliant. And so I heard we don't a, have to do as much pandering and whatnot. I heard an older, um, an older gentleman uh, use this line before, and I'd never heard it before, but I thought it was funny. Um, you know, he, we were talking in general about, he was a longtime financial planner and we were talking in general about what's going on. And he was like, well, you know, um, when it's all whipped cream and martinis, which I guess is a slogan for when things are going well, um, when it's all whipped cream and martinis, like, sure, it's okay to that. We have a lot, we've really, you know, globalized our trade, um, and that we rely on other, on other, um, countries, but when things start to go bad, um, that's not what the position we want to be in. And I think that this is a reminder at actually like a small level, um, that we have to be, uh, we have to be a little bit more energy independent, um, and reliant on ourselves. So kind of moving on into the next thing here, uh, before we wrap up today, uh, speaking of kind of global trends, why don't we touch really quickly on what's going on in China this week? or in the past few weeks, Sam, why don't I, I'll head it off to you to kick it off. Yeah. So um, there's been videos that have gone uh, viral on social media over the last week of tanks being kind of parked out in front of banks in parts of rural China. Um, and, you know, obviously like be careful about what you see on social media and all that. Like, you know, we're all adults here. You can probably figure that out for yourself, but um the the kind of i guess broad strokes headline is that china um the ccp has decided to uh turn some rural regional banks in china turn depositors money into uh like what they call investment accounts so basically like people don't have access to their bank account and that money is being used uh, by the government without their consent to fund other projects with the hope of those people's accounts being like credited with a return in the future. So it would be like me or you being like, hey, financial advisor, I would like, here's my money. I would like, you know, you to grow this 5% a year for the next 25 years. But instead of that situation to be the financial planner just coming to us, taking it without our consent and being like, hey, you don't have access to this. And also, like, the government is kind of on my side when it comes to this. So, obviously, like, it's a huge infringement of, of their, you know, freedom financially. Um, 
and it kind of part just... of a growing frustration, right? I mean, I think it's part of a growing yeah. frustration on their end to say, like, you know, hey, this is, um, you, you know, what's one of the things that's interesting is that, like, um, from a fine from a from a, like a consumer's financial standpoint, China is so much wealthier um, than the generations, like the families' generations that came before them. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's an example of it's just like, hey, as the world moves forward, like, and this is the thing that's so frustrating about it is you're not going to find any accurate data um, on how deep this issue goes, right? I mean, China might be willing to admit it and say there's uh, some millions that are kind of being held back. Um, but if you look at how deep the protests are going, which again, hard to get accurate information, but this seems like a pretty, a pretty, it's a pretty serious situation. Um, yeah. I mean, the fact that they had to bring in like legitimate tanks yeah. to sit outside these banks as like a show of force. Uh, that's, that's kind of, you know, kind of concerning. Well, and I think it, it's just kind of going to show what we're seeing at a, at a much larger level with China. I mean, um, I think, you know, the, the I think this week, part of what I read in the, in the news was that, you know, now, you know, China, we were thinking that China would have about a 6%, 5 to 6% GDP growth. Um, and now it's kind of been booked down towards 4% and it could easily kind of drop down lower depending on how, um, you know, depending on how the rest of the year shakes out with their, you know, I know they've got this zero COVID tolerance policy that's really affected a lot of their, um, you know, kind of warehouse supply chain issues. Um, we've also got riots that are going on. Like if you remember the riots um, in Hong Kong for a long time, which you know is not directly related, but um, there's just riots constantly um, about all these different issues that they're facing. Um, so all that to say, I think it's, it's at a, at a much higher, higher level. Like I think that, um, you know, while we kind of thought, you know, China was, they came out, they didn't they kind of come out, came out earlier, their economy was doing better than the U.S. Mm-hmm. was during COVID. And everyone was kind of like, yeah, they're, they're positioned to come out of this really well. It's like, well, it just goes to show you that when you, you know, operate um, not with best people's intention, with like your individuals, your citizens' best, um, you know, with them at the top of the mind, uh, and you do things like cutting off their access to financial resources that they've saved, like there's going to be challenges there. So um, why don't we kick it off to the next subject? Um, VC funding are probably yeah, one of our so, favorite, favorite things. Yeah, this is definitely a, a favorite topic of me and Tyler's. Um, you know, it's kind of an interesting segue. The VC funding is like all but dried up in, um, in China uh, yeah. as of, I don't know, call it the last year after they've cracked down on Alibaba and a few other large tech companies there. VCs yeah. um, just kind of see it as way too much of a risk. Yeah, well, um, they're, they're not letting those companies IPO in American markets sometimes. Yeah, right. Which is, you know, a big, uh, obviously, incentive for VCs to put money in at an early stage because they'll get the liquidity that an IPO brings. Um, but let's, let's kind of chat about the the VC market writ large. Um, 2021 was the largest year by VC funding like ever imaginable. Um, obviously we had, driven we had too by, much money. <laughs> yeah, ob- obviously driven by, you know, the printing of trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Um, you also had kind of uh, a little bit of an interesting strategy shift from some of these investors. So we can go kind of into some like, basic definition. So VC funding is like the, they're basically these investors that come in and they uh, provide 
capital for small tech companies typically to grow. Um, so think of it, you know, like Facebook in the early days, and it was just Mark Zuckerberg with his jeans and Adidas slides in some random house in California, you know, they come in and say like, Hey, here's some money to go hire a bunch of new engineers and like scale your company, yada, yada, yada. Um, so it gets a lot more in depth than that. And I'm sure in later episodes, we'll kind of break it down even further, but just the very, um, very quick, the very quick on it, Sam, is it's, you've got seed funding. That's the earliest stage seed. There's now pre-seed, but seed is kind of the earliest stage. You don't have to have revenue if you have a good team and a good idea and a proof of product. Um, but generally there's some revenue going on there. Call it, you know, let's say, uh, you know, 25 K, uh, up, you know, 25K monthly recurring, something in those lines, 50K monthly recurring. Uh, and then you've got Series A, which traditionally was sought at once you hit a, a million monthly recurring. That number went very far down uh, in 2021. Companies were sometimes raising at 200K annual recurring revenue. Uh, and then you go further down up the list and you get to Series B, Series C, uh, and those are kind of labeled as growth stage funding. Uh, these are companies that are raising serious amounts of money as they transition uh, to becoming very large companies. Um, so that's just the, and then eventually there's kind of this big liquidity event when you IPO. And as a VC investor, just because you invest in the very beginning doesn't mean that you hold all of your equity to the very end. Um, there's exit opportunities at basically each of the different stages um, in the cycle to of the raising cycle to sell and look, kind of um, liquidate some of your investments. Um, and typically VCs are looking at these on a multi-year time frame, right? Uh, and they're not just investing and letting it go like you see in public markets. They take very active roles. They're on the boards of these companies. Um, they be they are really truly advisors, and their job is to help you know improve the the, the life of these companies. So that's a highlight, uh, a big level overview on venture funding. Yeah, yeah, it's, that was a great uh, definition. So um, looking at kind of the 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 landscape for 2021, um, multiple hundred billion, like hundreds of billions of dollars were put to into companies. Um, the peak they, was in November. Yeah, 70 billion, of, right? Yeah, that was in November. That was the most money that was deployed in a single month ever. Um, so 70 billion in November. If you look back to November of 2020, uh, that number was 26 billion. Um, and then, it's, you know, December hits, and it starts to rise from there um, into 70 billion in November of December of 2021. That number has now dropped dramatically. Um, so the article that we're looking at, which I'm sure is like maybe a month out of date, but in May, um, 39 billion was deployed globally. So uh, near roughly half of what was deployed in November just a few months prior to that. So. Tyler, I'd be interested in hearing what your kind of thoughts are on why that's the case um, and what the forward looking, uh, you know, next six months to a year call it are going to look like. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fascinating. I think there's it's probably it's two part. One is that like um, I would I think you look at the venture funding. Um, it's it's truly it, it does its best job when the mark like people are putting the most money into it when the market is really hot. Uh, they have more money. They're looking for ways to diversify. They're looking for out those outsized returns. They're not looking for safety. And so that's generally one of the things that you see that money starts to get pulled out of during a recession or during economic downturns. And so I think that's one thing that's going on. I also just think there's been such 
um, there's been such a drop in public companies. I mean, like SaaS, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of these tech companies are like B2B SaaSs. And if you look in the Ex- public explain, markets. Explain why that matters though to the, to the funding for the, the listeners that might not understand. Yeah. So if you think about like, hey, you know, this is your ideal target. When you are investing in one guy in his dorm room, um, you are saying, can I see this man uh, or this company uh, be a publicly traded company that's performing very well. Um, and I think that when you get to see like back in 2021, you saw these highs, like these record highs where like, you know, there are these publicly traded companies that were like, I don't know, trading at like 40 times price to earnings, like these crazy numbers. And all of a sudden you have, now it's like super, super pulled back where it's like these ones B2B SaaS companies that everyone was super hot on. They're now down 75% year on the year. And so you're like, hey, this is not this ideal target out there um, right now um, isn't as hot. Maybe it will be in a year, two years, three years. And but it's not worth my time today to put money in because I'm not going to go see those same outsized returns. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's my you know, you may have more to add on that, Sam. But um, you know, I think what what I what I think what we're seeing is it's going to be harder during I think we're still going to see some seed level investing um, just given that like, Hey, that's a three to four year timeline. Right. Um, and if you've got a good founder with a good business, you know, that can potentially weather the storm, keep their costs really low. Like that's a still business you can invest in. And I think sometimes a seed, like I think, uh, or not a seed, a series A, that's kind of like the first stage of growth. I think where there were going to be challenges is when you start to get into these later raids rounds of funding. I was just reading an article in the wall street journal about like, Hey, one of the, one of the problems here is it's like, Everyone that put money in November of 2021, when these founders were raising at record highs and they blew all this money, like they're going to be one hesitant to put money back into it. And then two, they're not going to want someone else to come in a big tight, you know, tiger age, tiger global and cut the funding valuation on this and get a deal because they're going to lose. They're going to right away take a loss on that. So mm-hmm. um, those are some things I think that I've been stewing on for when you look at the global VC market, but I'll start off to you to kind of clean some of that up. Yeah, I think like, you know, we've talked a lot about it from an investor's point of view. From the founder's point of view, I think um, there is just, it, it's going to come, it, 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 it will turn into what happens in any kind of uh, market uncertainty or downturn, which means that in public markets, it's always a flight to quality. So the money flows out of, you know, call it like speculative biochem companies or speculative um you know, tech companies and all of that uh, and flows into companies that have predictable cash flows that um, large cash balances. Yeah. That are considered very safe bets. Um, And so like I was just watching CNBC this weekend, they were saying how like literally everybody is an Apple right now because it's one of the safest places to be. Their Um, cash balance is insane. Yeah, exactly. And so you're going to see the exact same thing in uh, in VC funding. Um, it just will look slightly different. So there, there's yeah. a flight to quality, meaning that, um, you know, for as many people that can, they're going to be trying to buy uh, shares of Stripe on the secondary market. So, you know, say uh, early executive at Stripe doesn't want to work there anymore, but has a bunch of shares and wants to sell them. They'll sell them to a VC on like a kind of, backroom deal that they kind of agree on the price. Um, 
And so there'll be a flight to companies like Stripe. There'll be a, a flight to companies that are uh, backed by other large investors. Previously, there will be companies that have, you know, just the most insane uh, qualifications for their founding team. So the bar just gets much, much higher uh, in times like this. And so you're going to see a lot of that. Like there, there will be less speculative bets on, um, you know, two guys in a dorm room uh, and more bets on like, oh, okay, so you worked at Google, then you worked at Facebook, then you worked at, um, you know, two yeah, other- you were the COO you know, at this startup. Yeah, right. And then right. you guys exited here, all, right. All the money is going to flow to people that have a track record because at least at the end of the day, you'll be able to say like, hey, you know, we took a chance on these guys that had, or, or girls that had, you know, an amazing resume, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out rather than like, Hey, we took a chance on these folks that literally yeah. just graduated college and have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. Well, and um, I think, I think you're also the founders that like raised that seed round that let's call it, you know, a couple million dollar seed round. Um, and they blew their money on company culture on really aggressive, unfound, un, you know, AB tested marketing and sales strategies, um, ones that right rely heavily. Like you know, this should still be you know, the, you know, founders that you know are having to rely heavily on bringing in talent uh, to really you know actually grow and lead the business. Like I think those kinds of places, it's just like if you're an investor today, like thanks, I'm gonna put my money somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and so I, it'll be interesting. You know, I think it's a market that's gonna come back, um, but it's definitely not gonna be a favorable time. Um, for many, many founders. Um, and if you are a founder out there, like, you know, get your bottom line, build revenue today um, and, you know, cut costs as much as you can because that's what they're going to be looking for. Yeah. I think just before we wrap it up, it's like, okay, you know, this is all, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, okay, cool. Like I'm Sam or Tyler's friend and i am not a venture capital investor i don't do that much in the stock market i don't really care about politics like what is what does any of what we've said mean to you i think touching on this last point about the slowdown in vc funding there was an article i believe it was in the economist a couple of weeks ago Tyler, that you sent me um and it was like the end of the millennial um what was the title it was like the yeah. end of the millennial uh whatever i don't remember the title but um, i'll go back and find it yeah yeah the main point of it was um all of these vcs have uh essentially funded part of your lifestyle without you knowing it yeah so those oh it was the end of the millennial like lifestyle subsidy is what it was called yeah yeah so if you think about it you know you take an uber home from a night out and then you get home and you order some DoorDash because it's 3 a.m. and you're hungry and you don't want to go out and get food. Well, that Uber was artificially, the price of that was artificially lowered because they had stacks and stacks and stacks of cash that they could out of pocket pay the drivers more and subsidize yeah. your ride home so that Lyft didn't get you as a user for that night. Um, yeah. And then for DoorDash, call it, it's the same exact thing where they subsidize your food delivery so that you would use them instead of the 15 million other, um, you know, food delivery services. Right. So, you know, you think about it like, okay, boil it down to how is this going to affect me? It means Uber. And I'm sure most of you have probably noticed this. And if you haven't pay pay attention to it, 
your Ubers will get more expensive. Your DoorDash will get more expensive. Your grocery delivery will probably get more expensive. Airbnbs will get more expensive. You look at any tech company that has provided these kinds of new and interesting services, it is all going to get more expensive. It's all going to hurt your bank account more. So not to scare the crap out of you and like make you freak out with all this bad news that we've brought, but I think it's worth it to pay attention to stuff like this because the world is changing under your feet. You need to just kind of be aware of it. Well, and, and I, the last, and that's a great point, Sam, I had actually forgotten about that article. I think that my kind of bigger, as we close my bigger kind of theoretical side behind this is um, I think we, I think our generation is becoming numb um, to a lot of things that go on and happen, whether, you know, we spend our time on TikTok and Instagram um, and we kind of get, we kind of zone into these jobs and careers. Um, but the messes that are being made today are yesterday and then our parents' generations will be on the backs of us to fix and to build a better world for. Um, and at the end of the day, like we need to know and understand what happened the past two years and what is going to happen the next three years. Um, because mm-hmm. there's going to become a time where we'll be leaders of companies, um, we'll be leaders in politics, we'll be leaders of households, um, and these things are going to happen again, um, and they're going to be different. But if we don't remember what it felt like, how companies navigated it, the winners and the losers, then we're not going to be ready the next time. And so I think staying educated and being aware of this completely unprecedented past two years and what will be the next two years is going to be important for all of us. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a great place to wrap it. All right, guys, this is the Capital Games podcast. Uh, We're going to be coming to you once a week on Fridays or Saturdays, talking about the world at large, the markets at large. This is your host, Tyler Sells, signing off. Sam? This is your host, Sam Johnson, also signing off. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye.